Hello and welcome to the next episode of Lost in Criterion. I'm John Patrick Watari Dorkin, and with me, as always, is a man who has an entirely plug-and-play family. <laughs> I am the Adam Glass, and what's uh, what's life if you don't get to just trade out wives every five years? Right, it's just like I just I, I can't stop thinking about it, except for in like terms of like computer hardware or something. Well, I just swap this out here; it'll be fine. Like, yeah, no one will even notice. Oh, yeah. You make an interesting point because this movie did very much remind me of the Stepford Wives. Yeah, in, yeah. And it's uh, last, <laughs> last a little bit, especially. Uh, but yeah, uh, Pat, I have a great, uh, great news. We have a guest this week. We do. We do. Uh, Hello, everybody. <laughs> that voice you just heard is <laughs> Adam Spickerman. Uh, I told him to to jump in whenever, so he did real good there. Uh, Adam is a uh, longtime supporter uh, and uh, asked to be on this episode. And as we discussed at the end of last week's episode, I have I have been less vocal about this more recently. But from the very beginning of this, I have always said, if you see a movie coming up that you want to talk to us about, let me know. And uh, we'll see what we can do. Uh, so we are lucky enough to get Adam on uh, because of time differences. He... Uh, <laughs> We have had to reverse our our scheduling just to uh, have everybody awake at the same time. I so. personally don't mind because it's actually not the middle of the night for me, so I'm yeah I'm quite happy. Pat's glad to have you here. I'm, in I'm high glad spirits. to have you here. Good, good. Uh, what here. it does mean is that Pat's family will interrupt us at some <laughs> point, but mine may as well. So yeah. my, my my family has I, I've been teaching from home for like you know teaching online for like the last four months or whatever so uh, they've gotten used to they've learned to interrupt quietly time. they walk in yeah. and one of my sons will just sit here and stand right next to me on camera and be like just <laughs> wait for me to acknowledge him and be like excellent it's like i'm not gonna say anything but you're going to have to deal with me it the last could be like a puppy he could crawl in and just put his nose <laughs> on your leg that there would, you be... <laughs> would be <laughs> at least one of my kids would think is probably likely to do something like that yeah the last time Pat's kids actively uh, interrupted a podcast to the point that we uh, we had to stop, uh, I believe, was before the the second child was born, uh, and your oldest was vomiting. Yeah, well, actually, that happened last night. Weirdly enough, yeah, as a sort of yeah, like I I my favorite thing about being a dad is uh, when suddenly I hear just a just a terrified scream just at the top of their lungs. Because somebody has appeared who is covered in vomit. Ah. <laughs> it's like, all right, well, we need to deal with this problem. Did we cancel yeah, that recording right. or did we let it just run? I don't remember anymore. Uh, I think we canceled. I, it was enough years ago. I think we ended up stopping. I think we sat for 20 minutes. I sat for 20 minutes. <laughs> yeah. And you finally came back and said, yeah, this isn't. We're, yeah. <laughs> we're going to yeah. have to. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I don't I don't know what episode that might have been. Uh, yeah. Um the yeah, uh, it was. the night we moved out of our apartment and to our house, the so we hadn't yet we we're moving the next day to our house. My then two and a half year old uh, got up at midnight. Everything is packed in box. Came in, into our rooms covered in vomit and like woke us up and said, "I overflowed." Oh my gosh! <laughs> oh my gosh! Uh, and so wow. we had. Uh, there were no extra, you know, clean bedding anywhere. It was all packed. All the extra oh, clothes no. were packed. Oh, it was just, gosh. it was a delight the night before uh -oh. moving. It was 
you know, A plus classic kid moment. So <sighs> beautiful, beautiful. On that note, let's play the theme song. <laughs> Before we get started, I want to talk about our Patreon. Okay. Uh, Patreon.com slash Lost in Criterion. Over there for just a dollar a month, you get access to a bonus episode. You get to vote on what that bonus episode is going to be. Adam, I'm going to put you on your spot. What's your favorite bonus episode? Uh, (laughs) I've never watched, listened to any of them. Oh, no. I'd I'd have to look at That's a valid answer. It's funny, uh, actually. I know I listened to the Aliens once twice after you oh, uploaded so it the uh, <laughs> second time, I did, and I couldn't I put tell. Up the director's cut. I couldn't tell the difference in the director's cut from the one I had listened to months before. Oh man, <laughs> it should have been like a half hour longer. So I'm not maybe. sure it is. <laughs> <laughs> maybe maybe I <laughs> just uploaded the same one twice <laughs> a year and a half ago. I should probably go check that. Um, <laughs> uh, uh, I think I'm the one that made you guys watch Ernest Goes to Camp, so I really enjoyed uh, oh, listening yeah. to that one. I actually watched it again as well. I was like, why am I doing this to myself? This is terrible. <laughs> <laughs> it's good. It's good. That Aliens so, episode is great. That Ernest Goes to Camp. I love that movie. I, I really it is, it's wild. It's, yeah. it, it was, it's bad, but it it's was, bad in a good way. Exactly. I was not... I was, I did not watch Kicking and Screaming because I had yeah, seen that don't and I that. knew it was one of the worst <laughs> no, movies no, of that's, all time. That's, that's, really, that's no. just sort of... <laughs> You know, really, really dangerous for your health. It uh-huh. really is the worst movie I've ever seen. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, uh, that's a dollar a month. You get the vote. Uh, it's always uh, four four items that are sort of themed depending on my whims or uh, the suggestions of, of supporters. And the fifth item is always Kazam. Uh, and uh, yeah, you guys have made us watch Kazam a couple of times. And I, yeah, it's 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 growing on me. We have my kids. I don't know. I don't know if I could convince my kids to watch it with me again, though. They'd be like, "We've seen." I this think. Twice. I think maybe we've only watched it once. Really? I thought we watched it twice, maybe, but it's fine. Maybe it was twice. And I, I don't, don't know. know that it ever actually won outright. Uh, no, I think it's always won a roll. No, it off. did. It won. It won outright. It did. Which, win. Uh, it lost the only. It lost the only time it. Uh, it was in a roll off because uh, I decide the tie votes with a with a six or a twelve sided die or six sided die. It depends on what die I have. If I can find the dice. Uh, anyway, uh, <laughs> that's all $1 a month. You get the bonus episode. $5 a month. We like to thank the people at that level on air. Uh, there's no one at that level right now because over the last few months, our $5 uh, supporters have all bumped up to $10 or more. Uh, we like to thank those people on air, but we also do something I think is pretty special with that. Pat makes a piece of art based on one of the movies we've watched recently. I get that printed up on a postcard and write a little note and send that off to our supporters. Adam, you're one of those supporters. <laughs> thank you. Yes, thank you. <laughs> thank you. Thank you in person. Thank you so much. Um, you're welcome. I'm also excited. Uh, Adam shared with us that he already got his postcard for this month. Uh, which I was expecting to be much more delayed than it was uh, because the post office is being screwed. Yeah. Uh, go figure. What a president we've got, that president. Anyway, 
Uh, I'd say vote him out, but the way he's screwing the post office... Might not be possible. Might not be possible. So, good luck, however you figure out how to solve that one. Uh, so, thank you to Adam. Thank you to Jonathan Hape, Patrick Yako, uh, Michael McGrath, Jason Westhaver, and Christopher Otto, who are also $10 and above supporters. This week, we yes. are talking about... The final full-length film in the four films by Agnes Varda box set, which uh, we're only really talking about two of right now because uh, the other two, <laughs> they released a Varda box set, and it contains two movies that we watched years ago uh, as part of the collection. Um, Cleo from 5 to 7 and Vagabond uh, are both in this set, and then last week we talked about Le Point Court, and this week is Le Bon Hour. Uh, from 19, oh goodness, I just lost the date. 65. There we go. From 1965. You know what's going on. I, uh, I looked it up today, so otherwise I'd have no you. idea. <laughs> uh, next week we're actually going to continue with the box set, uh, do, uh, something we did for the, uh, Tashigahara set. Um, there are a couple of short films on this box set as well that we're going to dedicate an episode to next week, and then we'll get back to the spine numbers. I uh, I never really like to do an unspined episode because it feels like we're falling just further and further behind when we do something <laughs> like that, but uh, it it feels appropriate. Right. We, I mean, when, we did it once, so we're going to do it again. Yeah. I don't. So. I don't really like when we've combined those um, <laughs> short films with main films it always just makes for a really right. messy episode where we don't really right. give anybody any justice they all kind of just get yeah. muddled together and it kind of makes for kind of a bad episode anyway i think yeah. so yeah with a few exceptions uh i feel like that's true though uh with the episode on if where we predominantly talked about thursday's children yes <laughs> i'm okay with I, that one I, you know <laughs> Thursday's children needed to be talked yeah, about. Yeah, it, it actually deserves... Yeah, exactly. So. Uh, anyway. Le Bon Hoor. This is her third feature film. After Cleo from Five to Seven and The Point Court. Other than those feature films, uh, Varda had been doing some documentaries. But this this movie, Le Bon Hoor, uh, Happiness, it is called. Um, Criterion has some, has some interesting... Has some interesting... Special stuff on this one too, where it's just it's Varda talking to random people about what happiness is, um, and then a uh, a sit down like debate among different professionals, um, writers and philosophers about what happiness is. Um, yeah, I, I couldn't watch those unfortunately. I, I meant to, but I ran out of time. What it with is the, the sick children, but I watched they the are uh, mostly the one where she ahead. does the 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 introduction for it for that German half German oh, half yes. French. And I love the fact that like the boy who's translating the German just slowly gets more and more removed from the thing. Like he starts off translating everything into German and it's like a little bit of it into German and then he just disappears. <laughs> I love he, he only says like a total of like maybe five sentences. I'm like why was he there? <laughs> like what was the point oh, of that beautiful. child? It's beautiful because she shows up. She says, "I don't speak German, so I have this random child with me." <laughs> he doesn't get. He literally translates yeah. one full sentence, half of another <laughs> sentence, and then he disappears. It's amazing. Oh, it's delightful. It's so good. It's so good. Uh, the bonus features on this are great. Uh, the movie itself is depressing. 
Uh, yeah. Uh, well, but I cheerfully like, depressing. I, cheerfully depressing. I am a yes. huge fan. I like. I really couldn't process it after I got done watching it because it was like <laughs> mind-bendingly like like. And then somebody let's say Hamra that calls it. Twist. Uh, when, no, when, who calls it that? He calls it like uh, a horror movie wrapped up in sunflowers. Is oh, is yes. uh, what uh, uh, Charmaret said about it? It's it's yeah, it's it's amazing. Like I, it's an amazing movie. Like it really is. Yeah. It leads you like you're watching it. And you're the whole time you're like, this isn't good. This is all, but like it's all wrapped up that way, right? And then you get to the end, and it's just, just, just shocking. It's just terrifying. Uh-huh. It's really amazing. I can't. I'm you know, still processing it, to say the least. That was my exact reaction the first time I've seen it. I saw it about three years ago, and it remains maybe my favorite discovery uh, in like the Criterion Collection of the ones I've seen, where I'm just like, I had no idea what it was going in. And uh, of those kinds of movies where I've never heard of it and have no idea what it is, this is definitely my favorite I've ever watched out of the Criterion. I was just blown away and horrified and amazed and oh, it gets yeah. better the next time around too so yeah. i want I, yeah. i'm gonna have to watch it again it's it's it deserves a second watch it oh wow mm-hmm. it, i was like the whole because like the way the movie's sort of done thematically right like when you're w- watching it the whole time you're you're sort of invested in the idea that like well the movie is telling me this is all happy mm-hmm. so like, like I know that this is not a good thing, but I'm going to buy into the sort of false reality that somehow this is all going to work out and be fine. Yeah. Like, you know what I mean? Like, okay, yes, this person is doing a, these, is doing a terrible thing, but I'm going to buy into this sort of weird universe that they created where, like, oh, maybe everything will be great. Maybe it'll, everything will work out or whatever. And it's like, no, that's not what's going to happen. Well, I mean, it'll work out for him. Yeah, <laughs> I guess it, it does seem to have worked out for him. Uh, I should actually mention since you uh, since you pulled up that uh, that quote from uh, from Jenny Charme, uh, Charmeray, uh, I actually have an irrational fear of sunflowers. Uh, <laughs> I'm cool. not I'm laughing at myself, but I'm not I'm not actually joking. Uh, not uh, see. There's two ways that sunflowers go. They get very tall or uh-huh. they get very, very big heads. Uh-huh. Uh and I hate the large flowered sunflowers. Huh. To a irrational degree. I'm not like scared <clears throat> of them in a way where I shut down, but I avoided seeing them and I used to have a neighbor who grew them and it just it was not uh it was not a thing that I enjoy at all. Oh, wow. So Sunflowers of that nature are apparently an actual horror film for me. So cool! I, we finally found something yeah, that actually scares great. Adam. Yeah, it's 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 weird. It's uh, I chalk it Bright up to this. Bright and cheerful and colorful, yeah. like horror movie. Like no obvious. Yeah, I chalk connection. it up to this this weird film or this weird thing where I I'm just uncomfortable around anything that's larger than I think it should be. Oh. And uh, and as a six as a six five gentleman. Uh, there are not a lot of things bigger than me uh, that I encounter on a normal basis. So I joke, I joke about people taller than me that I don't trust them, but, uh, but like large horses, uh, Clydesdales, uh, when I'm around Clydesdales, they make me nervous. Anything that could kill me without thinking. Like a sunflower. But, but large sunflowers somehow get, anyway, like I said, it's not really a fear 
so much as a discomfort, but. Or does it mean you're afraid of yourself? Right. Yeah, I'm very large, and I'm ultimately scared of myself. We've had a breakthrough. Um, so thank you. Thank you for that. Uh, no, it's just, it's just a weird thing about me that it, I don't know. It, it reminded That quote specifically reminded me of. Uh, but yeah, this, uh, this movie. This movie. Uh, Vardy does a lot of really interesting things here. Uh, not just in the uh, discontinuity between style and theme, um, but... Uh, I'd actually say it's continuous with the theme because well, the editing, like from the very beginning yeah. with uh, yeah. set to Mozart of the flowers, and those flowers are facing off against each other, but they look right. almost identical. She's basically mm-hmm. setting up the idea that two women are going to be... Uh, against each other even though they're never in the same frame together they're never right. like and so i my whole theory about that opening or at least the way i look at that opening is it's like symbolic of like the plot to come uh and uh oh absolutely and well, and, and, it, and i think you see that reflected throughout that like those stylistic uh you know moments when things like pop out uh very suddenly at you are when Emily, the second woman, is like starting to put, you know, like she and uh, the guy are basically starting to get together, and we have choppy, fast editing like the beginning again, and uh, right. that those sorts of moments are very, very uh, well integrated, I think, into the other movie, the rest of the movie, uh, in a very purposeful way that actually works with it all, even as it is deliberately disrupting the viewer. So right, yeah. Right. Would, and and that that choppy editing and the song come back in the final sequence as mm-hmm. well, where Emily has fully taken over uh, the old personality. Uh, yeah, in well, as much as we see, and I would well, and you know, keep in mind, like, well, I at least I would argue that um, that that sort of the way that song choppy that way does sort of remind me of horror movie editing mm-hmm. anyway also it's true. It, you know mm-hmm. it's flowers it's beautiful you know it's like little like you know it's things like a picture of a a thing on the wall or like all these things that aren't inherently scary but knowing once you know the ending the it paints that those those choppy cuts into like various like uh domestic items as really kind of scary actually and it plays out yeah. at the end right like the end also has those cuts uh and the music amps up enough that you're like oh i know this is a horror movie now like because mm-hmm. that, that song at the end tells really you, are yeah, scary yeah <laughs> yeah right uh, yeah. well it all comes back around adam is yeah. justified in his fear of something <laughs> uh Another thing about uh, some of those cuts, we we rarely fade to black. We fade to uh, red, blue, bright colors, uh, red, blue, uh, uh, white. Um, our main character's name is Francois. Do you think she might be saying something about oh, the state yeah. of France? Um, <laughs> uh, family values during the De Gaulle uh, administration, maybe. I don't know. Um, or just that... Uh... Men like uh, Francois are often portrayed in media uh, as like completely horrible, like very selfish, uh, straightforwardly people that want to interpret them as bad can. 
But she's saying, you know, a lot of these kinds of guys, they're legitimately charming. Like she's looking at it with a female gaze where each of these women look at him and find him very charming, very smooth, very like you, you never get that shift in perspective to show him as like a bad example of toxic masculinity. Instead, you see him, uh, as a much more, uh, you, you honestly think near the end of the movie that Emily, or not Emily, Therese is really going to go along with Francois yeah. because yep. she's agreed to it. But, you know, women are supposed to, like, not get involved in conflict right. and whatnot. And uh, ripping that away uh, is, I think, like, uh, really impressive and also just showing us him as just, just the relentlessly charming, appealing person who is doing terrible things. And also justifying them to himself and trying to force other people to go along with his justifications. It's very, very sneakily done. She makes him very compelling as she's like taking it down. And and succeeds in getting people to go along with, right? Because Mm -hmm. no one at the end, we see him interacting (laughs) with everybody in his environment and no one is reacting. Everybody, this is all fine. This is all normal. This is nothing is different here. And most viewers go along with him as well too because we're always used to sympathizing with the men look at that uh extra feature with the five intellectual experts they all make excuses for him they all downplay what he did they all say like oh he's so innocent like garden of eden and even like the the ultra feminist that they have in there that leads uh you know, uh, a really impressive kind of group. They're all playing into the cultural tropes of how we like, you know, right. uh, how we create, rationalize, rationalize and create these behaviors. Like everybody falls prey to this. So, yeah. Right. I find him very interesting balanced against, uh, say, a similar character in a Goddard film or, or uh, certainly <laughs> certainly in a Fellini God. movie uh, right. where we'd, we'd so easily know he's a bad guy right Right. and Mm -hmm. and no matter how much the director wants us to like him uh (laughs) certainly pat and i have never successfully liked any of those characters like her her hand with this is so much more masterful at actually getting i know that those movies that we have watched those goddard and Fellini films probably at the time the the male character succeeded in what the director was hoping to do i i would i would guess because you know like that was the purpose but like this one is so much more masterfully done in terms of just like convincing everybody like you know i'm sitting there i'm watching it and i'm going like this is bad this is all really bad why what (laughs) right but like at the same time i'm like but the movie's telling me i should be okay with it like i guess i'm just gonna go with this yeah and in most movies where like they uh a guy tries to talk girls into a like plural marriage type of situation which is what he's really doing rather than a threesome like jewels and gem right. uh it's it it does that like it just assumes that he if he can make his like little like successful analogy and speech like everyone's gonna go along with it because right. the thrust of the film depends on them going along with it so right. the writing has to like dismiss with it really quickly but often very ineffectively you never really right. buy it uh and here it is uh it is so much better done. And it also isn't dependent on the characters within the film buying it. Like you right. see a, just an array of emotions over Teresa's face and how she's right. like going to deal with her husband through this, uh, like in that whole scene. Uh, so the first time I watched it, I was convinced that uh, 
that the opening sunflowers, like the war of sunflowers, as I was thinking of it, had uh, indicated to me that uh, Emily actually sneakily like came out and drowned like and killed Therese in order to take her spot. But I think that's just too horror movie. It's too trite. Right, right. And watching it again, I was like, okay, clearly there's like an illusion here to Kate Chopin's The Awakening of like, you know, like the woman who's like given up on society, basically walking into the ocean and dying uh, sui- by suicide, right? Uh, drowning herself deliberately. Uh, mm-hmm. But at the same time, it doesn't feel right that you know someone with two kids as devoted to these kids as she is would go do that but the fact that it doesn't feel right doesn't invalidate the idea that it was suicidal but i i love the vagueness that it could be suicide or an accident um right so right well yeah, and yeah could... that's immediately you know when you're watching it you're okay i don't i don't know but it, it in the end it doesn't actually matter whether it was suicide, you know what I mean? Like, mm-hmm. like I mean, it does to us as viewers. Like, we want to know the answer, and that's part of what makes kind of draws you into it. But it doesn't mm-hmm. actually matter in the sense that, like, one way or the other, he essentially hot swaps wives. Like, it's mm-hmm. like okay, like whatever yeah. killed her. Like, I mean, it could be like a wild boar attack. It didn't actually matter. <laughs> what matters is the fact that sh- her personhood is actually irrelevant to him. Like, mm-hmm. right? She is interchangeable. Utterly and completely like the we and we know the movie messes with time enough and is unclear enough with time. We don't know how long it is, except for by the passing of seasons. But it's less than a season before Emily. I'd say it's about half a year because we're given a few different cues after she dies. Um, Like the fact that they ask him if he can they can turn on music would indicate he's out of mourning and mourning would typically be a couple of months. And then. And then, you know, we know it's at the end of summer. He's taking his kids to on a vacation. Right. And then it's very autumnal when, like, they, they end the scene with her and them. But I would say I don't think it's a complete, like, swap out for his benefit. You very much see uh, Emily uh, displacing Therese in a different way. She's not... Uh, identical in fact she's kind of like getting her claws into people and you see this throughout the movie uh with the way color and set design and costume are used uh like you know on a subconscious level that francois is going to sleep with emily as soon as he puts a blue shirt on right because she's coated with blues most of the time and you see that as soon as they like go on like their first date at the end of the uh, near the end of the movie or whatever, like, and she has the kids, like, he's got a blue shirt on, she's got a blue shirt on, both of the kids are dressed in blue, uh, and she is really taking possession of their family in a way that uh, Therese didn't necessarily do. Like, Therese would be dressed in yellows and reds, and the kids would be in other colors, you know, pinks for the girls and, uh, and you know, different things. And he never matchy-matched her in his costuming. Uh, he was dressed in different colors, but, you know, he would be in a black shirt or, you know, brown or whatever. As soon as Emily has taken possession of him, he always has the same color on as her. Like, and I, I feel like there's an a element to that that's kind of very interesting in how the costuming plays out and the way that it's portraying the women's different personalities and in terms of how right. they treat her, their husband. Right. And, I mean, it, uh, it, it's, I think it's definitely can be interpreted that way. I just think like with sort of Varda sort of, 
push for this being mostly about uh, sort of women's place in society and things like that, I I tend to lean towards it being more about his uh, lack of concern for the fact that, like, I mean, even if he goes through morning, I mean, I would say that it it is maximum like three months because it's Uh fall. He goes, it's end of summer. It's August. We know it's August when they go on vacation and it's late fall when they're out in the, in the, uh, the woods together at the end of the movie because of just sort of the, the leaves and things like that. We're talking about three months and, and the, the way he sort of just stares, like, I will say that I agree that like, especially when you look at sort of, she even more aggressively than Therese like is like a quote unquote caregiver. Like, uh, you know, when like Therese is in the beginning of the film doing stuff for the kids, but like, it's not as sort of, I don't know, like uh kind of over the top. Whereas like in the end, he's just wandering sort of around while she does everything. Like he's not even really involved at all. And like, he like walks, like he literally gets out of the car, wanders off while, while she takes care of the kids and stuff like that, which like I'm not exactly sure what, except for possibly the fact that um, maybe that's to indicate that she's even more sort of like you like you're saying, kind of even more taking over than Therese did. But like I still think in the end, it's mostly about the fact that like he doesn't seem to care. Like it's not really relevant to him which kind of which woman it is. Like, right. And and part of, I think, the indication of that to me beyond, before that is when they're talking after she dies, after Therese dies, they're talking about, like, well, where are the kids going to go? And I understand that, like, we're talking about a, a different time and a different place. But, like, he's not putting up any sort of fight for, like, oh, uh, they should stay with me. It's well, like, he, does, he does say one thing. Don't her parents them taking yeah. them. He doesn't. He doesn't. Right. Want he them doesn't to be so agree to that. He makes. He makes some arguments to keep them close. Even right. Even but I, as, what I mean uh, is, like, there's no yeah. idea that he would even bother to try. And again, I know different time, different place. But like, it, it's. Right. It's not like it's how. He's not being expected to take care of the kids while he adjusts to, right. to the end. Um, I'd say I think from, with Varda, and with. With my as familiar with Varda as as I am, which is not terribly, but we this is the fourth full length we've seen from her. I've seen a few of her shorts, and uh, I've seen uh, some of her later work as well. Um, with Varda, I don't think she's making this. Women are completely interchangeable, even even in a service of a an argument about women's place in society. She's not wanting this to be. There's only one woman in the world, sort of. Right. Uh, <clears throat> whatever, which which we might see from other uh, from some of the male new wave directors um, where they where they would even have the same actress play both of these roles. Um, they're similar. They are different. And I think part of you, Adam brought up the clothing. And to me, that uh, that's more of a personality thing in that Therese is a dressmaker. So she's going to make. She's going to explore creatively making clothing for everyone, whereas maybe uh, Emily has just uh, purchased clothing all at the same spot, which is why it all looks similar. Well, um, yeah, that's a good yeah. point. But, uh, but um, yeah, it's it is to me. Uh, they are meant to be separate people, separate yeah. enough people. And yes. I think Adam's mm-hmm. on to something there. 
and and I also like the way they differently rela- react to Francois' monologues. Uh, when he's trying to sell Emily on this relationship, he goes into a three-minute monologue about uh, how he and Teresa's relationship is so great, but he views Therese as a hardy plant and Emily as an animal set free. And I love nature, he says, to finish that <laughs> off. Whereas we come back to uh, to the conversation at the end of Teresa's life, uh, and we get the same sort of clunky... Uh, nature metaphor uh, we're a uh, we're an apple orchard uh, but maybe I go for a walk and I see a beautiful apple tree outside of the orchard and I I love it just as much as the apple trees in our orchard and uh, and she gets a moment of hesitation before she starts to agree to it right and she agrees to well, I mean, it there's a lot of expression on her face throughout that entire <laughs> right. scene like the acting right, in that right. scene a lot of body language a lot of body language, language there right Right. Uh, even as she starts to verbally say, yes, yes, yes. Oh, I love you so much. I don't want. Um, there's a later interview with Varda where uh, where she said she's talking about this movie and she says that uh, Teresa's response should be go to hell. Uh, but she doesn't say that. And um, that's quoted in uh, in the essay, um, uh, which is. Well, I don't. I don't have the author of the essay in front of me. Unfortunately, I thought I did, but I don't. Um, but quoted in the Criterion essay talks about that, and the author suggests that maybe that is not something Varda would have said at the time about the movie. But with a couple a couple decades between her and it, she says. Uh, but Varda goes on to say, and that's really what happens in the next scene, be it an accident or be it a purposeful suicide. She has said, "Go to hell." Right. To Francois mm-hmm. um yeah and that that is I had well I didn't know that's what she had said but that was the impression I pulled away from it watching it again right uh, yeah so it's in a way it's uh it ties into the title right happiness and that you know he's talking about like this makes you me so happy and she's saying well if it makes you happy uh right. and she is ripping away his happiness uh and you see that even in the final shot which is as uh john or john or pat pat uh pat you okay uh was saying you know he kind of just wanders off he's he's still a little right. despondent in his body language and his acting uh and you know his happiness is uh not the same that it was Right. Uh, it came with a price. And so, yeah, he may have a new life in front of him that seems like the same to a lot of people. But I think there's a an edge to that as well that says uh, n- no. <laughs> right, right. And it undermines what he said about it being an overflow of happiness that he feels with right. Emily. So mm-hmm. there's, no, there's no less happiness for Therese because he has Emily. Well, that would suggest that there would be no less happiness right. if he lost one yeah. or the other and uh and he says as much to Therese he says if you want me to stop this I will and she in her conditioning to make her husband happy says oh no of course why well, would I right yeah and also well, she probably doesn't trust that he's not going to do it right one, that's one right. Little he's already thing. kept it secret right like the whole time <laughs> right. already right so one little thing I noticed watching it again, when he first goes into the post office, the very first time when we meet uh, Emily, uh, and he comes out of the phone booth, 
and talks to her for a moment. Uh, and as he's about to leave, he says, so when are you moving to our town? Yeah. Which means they know each other and have been right. flirting with each other for a long time. Well, well and she I had, was like, she wow. Mentioned I com- when he walked in, uh, cause she sees Did where she? he's, where he's making the call to. And she says, Oh, I, I, I completely I, missed I, that. I, I, I I, Maybe I'm I making that, that but I I, I, I read but, it this time as like, oh wow, he already knows her and has been flirting with her and making plans. That, yeah, so well, I mean, he has been that working is not on that outside the realm of possibility for some amount of time, right? Like uh-huh. the thing, the thing that got me though is because of a thing that we've talked about a lot on this podcast. I automatically assumed it was the woman who was getting the dress made for her wedding. At the very beginning, and I was like, <laughs> like I just I didn't even like. It took me a while to be like, wait, these are different people. Pat can't tell white women apart. It's, it's a problem, long-standing it's, problem. Uh, uh, yeah, like well, specifically blonde white. I don't know. It's just like, I, especially in movies, I just like okay, well, they probably because my brain started to try to construct a narrative that would like be easy to like sort of like bow tie up. So it's oh, it's the same woman, and then I, like after I was like, that's not the same woman. Wait. Because he also <laughs> says, like, when are you moving to our town? And they had talked about moving at the beginning in the right. in the dressmaking. So I was like, oh, it all comes together. And it's like, oh, <laughs> no, it does not. Oops. Yeah. I mean, uh, I realized it relatively early, like, quickly. But it, well, good. it was after that post office scene. And then we go to the wedding preparation. I'm like, oh, this is not the same person. Oops. Yeah. yeah. And it's, uh, it is nice that, like, Varda dresses them so completely differently that you never mistake Therese and Emily, right. even right. though Absolutely. they're blonde women of the same age that yeah. are, are somewhat similar looking. Except yeah. for, I will I will point out that the only time that you cannot sort of tell them apart is during the sex scenes. Yeah. <laughs> when they, when they, well, and I know yes. that, the, you know, also there's no clothes, but yeah. like, I think they're purposely sort of, uh, sort of depersonalized in those scenes. It's all just body parts fair. and like white sheets and things like. There's never any like, and you you do real eventually you realize like okay well like all the ones with Therese are actually sort of in their home and very like uh, I don't know what the word I'm looking for like sort of like uh, I'm trying to think about like they're like not shot that way, but mm-hmm. when they're at, with the ones that are happening with uh, Emily, you don't know that it's Emily until the shot is until that's over. You know what I mean? Because yeah. they, they don't. They, there's no, no because of the way the editing's done. Like there's no setup to let you know. Like this is who he's with right now. A lot of times it's just a sex scene, and you're like, okay, but who is this person? Who is this blonde person? I see half of an. I see an eye. I see. You know, <laughs> and then you're like, oh, well, it was Emily. Okay, but yeah. like what I mean is like I feel like that's done on purpose to like depersonalize mm-hmm. that activity, at least with right. Emily. Yeah, um, I think you're right, um, and. Uh, there's there's a set design stuff to that too, like where you look at the you know Therese and Francois's apartment. It is a very lived in apartment. It, right. There's clutter everywhere. They've painted everything. They've got like a little like fa like headboard piece of paper they yeah. put and pinned up behind their very small bed. Uh, it's adorable. It reminds me of you know living in an apartment or in yeah, college. Yeah. And uh, uh, you get to uh, Emily's apartment and it is empty white walls with white sheets in front of white walls and you're just like huh that's yeah, uh, well, exactly that yeah, that is a incredibly striking difference in their personalities and like also what we're being told about the women that like emily's keeping her life empty and then she suddenly like fills it at the end with that this right. family she's taken uh well, and, and it's progressive too right because like mm-hmm. after 
his wife dies, I think it is, or maybe right before she gets a table. Mm-hmm. Like oh, Emily suddenly has table. a piece of personality. Uh-huh. You know what I mean? And like it it's has suddenly there. Flowers on that right. table in an enormous arrangement. There are sunflowers scattered into that arrangement, mm-hmm. and they talk about it for a moment in a brief scene, and then in a very brief montage at the very end of the film, we see the that table with the flowers again, and it's identical except for all of the sunflowers have wilted, mm-hmm. <laughs> and with sun. With sunflowers being kind of coded as Therese, it's very like, yeah. it's like one of those subtle little things I only picked up on, like, uh, watching yeah, it I again. And, uh, and, and you see things like, uh, uh, Therese, the only time she wears blue in the movie is in the final scene that she has in the countryside. Uh, and she's wearing a blue and yellow dress. And, you know, it's mm-hmm. almost foreshadowing what's about to happen. Uh, and, then you'll also see, like, in that montage at the end that, like, Emily has uh, put, like, different blue, co- you know, sheets on their beds and put, like, her right. stamp on all of this other different stuff, displacing right. Right. her completely. It's, uh, it's, yeah. Yeah. Um, another aspect uh, of uh, Varda's film craft here uh, that's maybe a little on the nose, but I also love is that every so often the the camera will linger on advertisements or uh, signboards in the background. Uh, the first ones we get are temptation and mystery uh, as uh, as they go out. He and Emily go out on their first date. Um, as he comes home from work that night, it's uh, Jamie I love on, uh, on a board outside of work. Uh, Later on, after uh, when he's on his way to the post office to write the telegram poem, we get detective story real quick. Yeah, um, that's a uh, <laughs> that's a uh, movie advertisement where it has uh, Irma LaDouche, a Billy Wilder film, and detective stories, a, a William Wyler film. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so, like, but it's very clever to like put that in there because I hadn't thought of like detective story being tied into what he's doing. But then he goes and he writes a coded message. So right, yeah. right, <laughs> yeah. Um, assurance, confiance. Uh, yeah, it's uh, <laughs> a lot of uh, a lot of interesting little. Uh, you know, the uh, watching it in with subtitle is is great. Uh, for for noticing things like that because Criterion chooses to translate those signs, uh, which uh, hey, wonder if that's important. Well, huh? yeah, some of them, but um, not all of them. I, yeah. I was well, I, I obviously assume... detective stories written in English, right? So right. Well, we don't I mean, need a translation there. Some but... of the building names are not. I, it was, I found it really fascinating because I kind of assumed after we got some of the ones at the beginning, I'm like these probably are actually all supposed to mean something, <laughs> but Criterion yeah. sort of haphazardly. Did the ones that they thought were like really important, and then some of the other ones are not. And I'm like, well, I bet they it's are. It's possible. But yeah. I, in my mind, I was like, I bet these are important. I wish I spoke or read any French. <laughs> this would help a lot. Uh, I I do a little, so I did a little, but right. I don't a lot. So yeah, I just had that. We yeah, all I was, we all I was need like, a random German boy translating French. For yeah, us. right. Who <laughs> <laughs> no, just eventually fades away. When he's not needed anymore. Well, like, she does uh, talk in French for like another ten, like another two minutes after that with no translation. I was like, "What's happening here?" It's a really great. Uh, I love that. I love that feature. Um, Vart is just delightful. Yeah. Uh, that is. 
um, always been true of my uh, my interpretation of her, but particularly after seeing Faces Places, um, it was even more so because it's yeah uh, documentary she made uh, a few years ago now, um, I think 2017, uh, with a straight artist where she <coughs> she and he go out uh, to uh, rural areas and he makes large scale images of uh, locals and gets them printed up and puts their face on the side of the building that they reside in or work in or, or images of town folk around the town. And it's a, it's a delightful little piece. Um, I think we talked a little bit about it last week because it ends, it ends with her going to visit Goddard and Goddard has disappeared and refuses to meet with her. Uh, <laughs> it's great. Adam, have you ever seen it? It's uh, I I really wanted to see it that yeah. year it came out and then I never got around to it and then I didn't realize it was on Netflix for a while. Yeah. Uh, and then I found out a few months ago it was on Netflix right around the time Criterion announced they're doing a massive complete uh Anya Svarta set and yeah. they I was like, "Oh, well, I'm definitely going to watch it eventually because I'll probably get that set." <laughs> right, so, right. Yeah, yeah. I I it's definitely on my list, but I haven't seen it. I was bummed a, that she did not win an Oscar though because I was really hoping she would win an yeah, Oscar for that. Yeah. So, yeah, it was really good. I didn't I didn't see any of the other document fe- features that year, so I can't speak to relative quality, but uh it was good. Um <laughs> I really enjoyed it. Uh but yeah. Uh <laughs> Man, this. Yeah, no, I yeah, the, it, it. I was I after almost immediately after watching this, I immediately turned on Clue Five to Seven because I was like, all right, I, I need a well, because I needed a point of a sort of point of reference, uh, mm-hmm. because we want what was the movie we want? I cannot seem to hold in my head the name of the movie we watched last week. I I just keep losing it. Uh, uh the the points court. Yeah, and like. These are very different movies, and I was like, okay, well, I need to know what, how sort of Cleo Five to Seven fits in there, and like, I think part of, some of the shock of this movie sort of also extends from the fact that this is fairly different from both of those movies, like just sort of just at its core. Like this is what it kind of reminds me of. I can't remember um, which director we always talk about doing this, but the sort of escalation of like trying to prove a point. Oh. Uh, <laughs> Uh, oh. Pasolini is yeah, who Pasolini, we end up talking yeah. about with that yeah. sort of and, thing and because like, all of all of his movies are just ratcheted up until you yeah, get exactly. to Solo. I feel uh, like Pas- I don't know still enough about Varda's sort of total total filmography, but it does feel like the sort of messaging is sort of ratcheting up film to film. I, that's why I wanted to go back and watch Clue Five to Seven. I was like, I want to know is this message sort of in there, and what sort of at what level is it at? in the film and I, I this one is a pretty big jump though like this is really intense compared to the other ones that, we, that we've seen yeah right. uh and i think uh she definitely ratchets it up in her abortion musical one sings the other doesn't um yeah which is uh is an incredible movie uh but i also think to an extent the fact that she changes styles so effortlessly mm-hmm. from movie to movie for what that particular movie needs to do is very deliberate on her part and kind of a fuck you to the altar theory, uh, <laughs> right. which she was part of the left bank of, uh, 
of French New Wave. She was not one of the Cahiers du Cinema kids, uh, you know, and, you know, the auteur theory, like, says that directors need to make the same kind of movie all the time. And if they don't, they're not an artist. And the way you know they're an artist is, like, you can see that, like, you know, this is definitely a Hitchcock movie. It's the kind of movie he makes. Right. And it's very constraining. And it also diminishes the talents of directors that can work in multiple genres and work and and do almost anything, which is much more challenging. It's much more challenging to be able to successfully do a, a comedy and a women's melodrama and a Western, you know, and a war film. But someone like William Wyler did that effortlessly, even musicals. Uh, and William Wyler was often an, like the sort of director that got attacked by the auteur theory because he he has no imprint. It's like, yes, right. but he's a master. Like he can right. do literally everything. Uh, right. And... Uh, that's always, I've always had issues with the auteur theory because it seems so limiting and, uh, so almost like self-congratulatory. Like, I think you have seen a lot of directors since the, then become very, uh, focused on making sure that like films fit within what their kind of film is. Like Truffaut right. definitely started doing that after, he did shoot the piano player and he was like, um, you know, make, making a crime movie doesn't really fit within my, like, you know, my established style. So, <laughs> right. uh, and, uh, and yeah, it's just, I think to an extent she was staking out a claim to do what she wanted when she wanted right. and screw your silly theories. So, <laughs> right. Yeah. I mean, right. that when you, yeah, when you look at how different just those three movies that sort of, we watched in just the last two weeks are i mean you can still sort of somewhere deep down inside get a feeling that it's varda you know what i mean like it, it's it's something really 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 deep down in but it does they're they're so dissimilar in almost everything else i don't know something about the way that i don't i don't know how i would describe what it is it, it does feel like there's some sort of hard to nail down varda ness somewhere in there a je ne sais quoi. Yeah, uh, yes, exactly. <laughs> yes, a, a thing that I can't name. Um, like, but yeah, it, it it's very, it, it is much deeper than sort of yeah the the sort of auteur theory where it's just like okay this person like hello everyone I'm Christopher Nolan and I make this movie <laughs> <laughs> or Paul Thomas. Anderson. Have you seen this movie that right, I make? I right. make this movie. It's. It's a problem of a lot of modern directors, I think, that are aspiring, aspiring to an auteur status is that all of their films could take place in the same cinematic universe if we really wanted them to. Right. Uh, <clears throat> Wes Anderson. Uh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Oh, no. Shots <laughs> fired. Right. Yeah, no. Right. Yeah, they totally. All, like, they all fall to totally. the I think we all adore Wes place. Anderson, but yeah. So. <laughs> I'm not sure Pat does. Yeah, you... But, you... <laughs> <laughs> I I do not I do not hate Wes Anderson. I am not one yeah. of the ones who wants to to destroy him with all my breath. But I do not. <laughs> I I find Wes Anderson films to be a bit much for me, but as it, we've talked about a lot on this podcast. But I often, really do think they're often very good. They're sometimes some of his movies are just entirely too precious to the point of being extremely <laughs> off-putting. Right. And that's, and that, and and that for me is sort of muddled into sort of a general impression of him as a director where it's like, well, those ones have ruined some of the ones that were actually enjoyable for me. 
yeah. It's yeah, sort of I bled over. That. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I, I think I, I did not like the train one because I so disliked Life Aquatic. <laughs> oh, interesting. No. interesting. Yeah. So, yeah, yeah, like I the train one I found completely I don't like completely and utterly unoffensive in every possible direction. I felt like I was like this is if you took a Wes Anderson film and then also made it out of cardboard. Uh, <laughs> I don't know how to explain it. Like I was I was like I watched it and I was like okay, I'm not going to remember any of this. Uh, <sighs> But some of I, you know, that is, but that's fine. We we probably <laughs> don't need to turn this into a, we don't need to, a rehash we don't need to of my uh, complain my about uh-huh. Wes Anderson. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, wouldn't wouldn't so be lost Pat, in criteria if we didn't digress into yeah. something completely yeah. off Pat, topic. So Pat has a sympathetic ear, so he wants to he wants to get it out. But I think I think that's true of, like I said, a lot of directors in the modern day. It's I mean it's just as true as of Tarantino. It's just as true oh, as no, of Nolan. It's. I make fun of Christopher Nolan, but it is absolutely true of a lot of directors. In, and in it film. can work out really well for some of right, those directors, right, like right, Tarantino right. having his voice and style and Nolan having his voice and style, like in their print imprint on those movies. So clearly is generally good for those movies. Like it's, and they make excellent movies as well. It's, uh, it's less persuasive with, uh, uh, directors i don't like as much so (laughs) i have no i have no way to quantify that right i mean i think part of the issue though is that like it works for them because it has been like they've been successful in turning that into a thing that they can sort of leverage and i think that's part of the goal Mm -hmm. right the auteur theory has a certain sort of uh, cynicalness to it as well where it's like if you want to keep if you look at something like Truffaut, where you're like okay well i want to keep making movies that are successful also I need to keep making the movies that people expect from me, right? It's sort of like getting, you know, typecast mm-hmm. or something as an actor, right? Like, well, I can either go against this grain and things are going to be really, really tough, or I can go with it and, like, actually get to make movies that I want to make or something like that. Right. Um, right. Whereas and for... Yeah. Oh, go ahead. Sorry. Oh, no. I, I mean, yeah, but my idea was just that, like, you know, it, it it's not every director that works out, right? Like, that movie type that they want to make is not something that studios are looking for. And so, oh, the type of movie I want to make is just not going to work. No one wants to see that or make that. And there's a whole... That's a very significant part of like how international films are disseminated on the festival circuit, specifically from like celebrated directors. Like Fellini's films got more and more Fellini because people wanted a Fellini film. Like Bergman films got more and more Bergman because people wanted a Bergman film. Like, you know, uh, Agatha Christie wrote Agatha Christie novels because people wanted to read about Poirot or Marple or whoever. And like that is part of the part of like making, you know, product for consumption is like, you know, you have to give out something that is actually going to sell or you're not going to get to keep doing it. Uh, But and this is Europe as well. We're talking about with Truffaut and Godard and everybody. And so it wouldn't be Europe if there's not a class component as well. And Truffaut was from lower middle class. He definitely had to keep making successful movies, movies that would be successful in France and on the, the international circuit in order to keep making movies. Uh, someone like Godard who is an aristocrat that, you know, basically vacationed in Switzerland during World War II with his family at their, like, villa. (laughs) 
Like yeah. that's how wealthy his family is. And, uh, and never had a care in the world about whether his movies made money or not. Well, yeah, he didn't. He's an aristocrat. He's going to keep collecting rent his entire life and never having to worry about, you know, how he actually, like, you know, pays for, you know, room and board. <laughs> right. Right. And so. We talked about it a little bit last week, uh, but, you know, Goddard and, and Truffaut, uh, specifically i think are are very much working in commercially commercially successful ways um mm -hmm. maybe goddard doesn't need to but he does uh varda in so many ways is just making what she wants to make right right, right. If, if it finds yeah. an audience it finds an audience and that's great but you know i i joked last week everybody who saw uh La Pointe Court <laughs> yeah. uh, when it first came out, you know, uh, not a lot of people saw it, but everyone who saw it made a made a movie, so um, right and ripped her off. So, um, yeah. uh, you know, she keeps making what she wants to make, and she makes it when she has the resources to do it. Uh, and you know, well, and because it, she did it that way, also meant she struggled to find those resources in the financing right. scene every right. single time, which sucks. So, right. but luckily, she was married to one of the most successful French directors <laughs> of all time, who right. made right. Com incredibly commercially popular movies uh, that are just delightful in every respect. Uh, right, and she often worked for him as like his like costume designer or production designer, like you know, coordinating like those sorts of aesthetics for him as well. So they right. had a very and, fruitful relationship, her and Jacques Demy. Yeah. And plenty of her documentary work were hired pieces that she was right. asked mm -hmm. to do or, or hired to do. Um, not necessarily that she sought out to make, but ones where she, uh, she certainly was making it for a commercial audience by the end of things. Right. Right. Well, and I and that's where I kind of like kind of go back to with her work. We're, you know, if you kind of like take a sort of more, I, I would almost call it a more genuine approach to the to the something like the auteur theory. There is a thing about her work, and it, and because she's just making what she wants to make, at its core, somewhere deep down inside, is like, well, yeah, you know, there's lots of lots of artists end up just making you know who are not commercially successful that museums are chock full of their work. Um, make really a wide variety of work, but sort of in their heart, there's there's something that feels like them in there. And I would say that that's more like when somebody's talk like really what somebody's talking about when they talk about something like auteur theory, the kind of what people think in the back of their head is probably that thing. What they actually think is like the the sort of mm -hmm. the large scale like this is a Christopher Nolan film I know this is a Christopher Nolan yeah. film because here it is uh, but like we, what you're really looking for is that is that je ne sais quoi about like when you walk through a museum and you see a bunch of work by the same painter you can kind of just feel that it's the same painter even it you know what I mean like even if you've never seen that piece of art or that work and it's not necessarily immediate right like you can um, you know I'm trying to think of a of a good example of this and failing absolutely miserably right now um but like it, it's there in varda's work too it, it it's just really really subtle it's 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 in sort of the way the characters talk to each other and and some of that sort of stuff rather than in like the yeah. grand scheme like this is a true film 
Uh, And I would say some of that subtlety is a lot in just the way she looks at things. Like, you know, she she has a gaze that is different from the way a lot of other people do. It's why she comes up with ideas like faces places. Like she looks at faces differently. Like she her female characters in her movies look at men differently than in other movies directed by men like just and in film theory this is called like the male gaze is like the dominant like view of you know film like you know laura mulvey's essay visual pleasure narrative cinema talks about uh god what was the phrase from film school fetishistic scopophilia because you know you have to use ten dollar words or like no one will publish it in an academic journal um which is basically just, you know, like the act of looking is always coded as male in, mo- in film for the most parts. And yeah. uh, Varda has a different gaze and it's unique and it's amazing. And it's like one of the very cool things that really does mark her artistic signature on every piece, even without it all being like stylistically like a Hitchcock movie kind of like approach to something, um, you know, and one of the the other problems with like the the auteur theory is that it often erases uh the existence of so many other people that work on films which are immensely collaborative and have a ton of people working on them um you know like i said like varda did a lot of costume design for jacques demi but you don't often hear about that because like because it's a jacques demi film it doesn't matter right. that's costumes by varda right um and in classic Hollywood cinema, you see that to a lesser extent because, like, there's not, like, auteur theory imprinted on everything. So, like, if you watch, uh, you know, like, classic 30s, you know, films, you'll start noticing, like, costumes by this person for this studio and costumes by this other famous designer for a different studio. Like, a lot of times these things were front and center and often even celebrated uh, that wouldn't, at least in movie magazines at the time, in a way that that stopped happening after like the auteur theory took hold Mm. but you also can't say the auteur theory just came out of like the 1950s because i mean in you know 1919 or whenever you literally have mary pickford and douglas fairbanks and charlie chaplin and dw griffith like all forming united artists because they wanted to be in control of what they made charlie chaplin wanted to be you know in control of everything in a charlie chaplin movie and you even have like you know his movies are called a Charlie Chaplin film in the twenties. So you know the idea of like them having like their actual imprint isn't new. It being the only way that you can make films, like uh, or being the only artistically valid way you can make films, is something that kind of came out of this era of time. And I think it's done, you know, somewhat some damage, and it has erased a lot of different people's contributions to film and film history. Uh, when you're only celebrating the figurehead of a director, it's like it kind of does that. But having worked on movies, like the director, you have to have someone on the movie that says yes to things. Like that is like, you know, do I approve this costume or that costume? Someone has to say that. Like the costume designer might bring like five five designs for the main character to the director. And he's like, we're going to do this one and that one. You know, with without someone able to say yes, like that has is vested with that authority, you coordinating all the logistics of making a film is incredibly hard. Uh, so it's just, it's interesting because there's so much validity to it, but it's also as it's been 
commodified in how we like receive films and everything. It's become uh, sort of uh, overblown to a degree, I would say. Right. right. Yeah. I mean, and well, it's it's the difference between your know, as you said, right? Like treating it as still a fundamentally collaborative effort versus sort of like a a sort of a, like a dominated by one person effort right because like that costume designer does bring those costumes to for approval but that costume designer still designed all five of those costumes for exactly that's still that costume designers that costume designers voice is there and the director did not design those costumes right but like you know directors are often given credit for cinematography or giving credit for editing or giving credit for costume design because you know uh we don't have we have not developed a language to deal with celebrating all of those things in the same way that we've developed a language of celebrating, like, you know, directing. And when I was in school, uh, Spielberg came to class first. I literally had a class that was the, you know, Steven Spielberg films uh, at USC. And he came and did a Q&A for like two hours at the end of the semester. And someone asked him, like, so what do you, what does your cinematographer do and what do you do when it comes to like shot design? And he's like, well, I choose the lens and the camera placement and the blocking and I decide the camera move and, you know, Janus uh, lights it. He's like, that's a simplification, of course. Like, you know, a lot of times Janus will say, no, we're not, you can't shoot it with that, that, you know, uh, that lens. And so we'll, we'll work something out, you know, collaboratively. But like, for the most part, Janus is, doing all of the lighting to make sure like the image looks good on camera and they're then they're working together to try to execute his idea of what the shots would be. Uh, and that's very different than the way a lot of other directors work with cinematographers where like, you know, they'll, they want to choose the style of the shot, you know, is it, you know, are we on a dolly? Are we on a steady cam? But, you know, not, you know, like choosing the kind of lens and, and a lot of like that kind of the camera work that gets done is not often something directors do, but they're always credited for it. Mm, uh, right. But right. cinematographers and directors are almost never credited for the actual lighting, which is almost like the most important thing actually happening, like, uh, you know, to get the image on this actual screen. Right. So we, we have a paucity of a vocabulary to talk about these things, I think. Well, so. I, I think we find that in other environments beyond uh, film right like we when you talk about like one of the le- like one of the major failings of like uh sort of the modern republic is the idea that like somehow a president is the most important thing to the running of a government right or something it's, it's that sort of figure hide figurehead sort of concept of like it's hard for human beings to focus on a wide swath of people especially if there's one single person that you can focus on instead right, right. it's it's easier to look at that and say this is the person than it is to say these are the people who make this thing happen uh one of the things i wanted to talk about while you were talking is the one the sort of funny interesting uh sort of exception to that idea is whenever i watch shows or read books where it's from a perspective of a person in a specific field like i used to watch that show on sci-fi that was a, a face-off the the uh the it was a um movie it was a monster yeah yeah horror movie concert yeah it was like horror horror movies and 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 makeup artists right and all about practical effects and they always knew all of the famous 
costume and, and, and makeup designers who came on the show. People that, largely speaking, no one else would know. Mm-hmm. Outside of that, that's particular, but they all knew because that's who's actually important. Like they watch a movie and they see that person's hand in it. Mm-hmm. A normal person right. doesn't do that, but they do. And like it's true of other other things. When I've I've watched other shows and and watched movies where somebody's got a particular interest in a specific field of filmmaking, where they're like they they can see that person's hand in it that a normal viewer just can't it's just too much they just it's okay i'll boil it down to this person because it's easy. yeah right and in in the course of doing lost in criterion we've become familiar with some of those background people but usually cinematographers more more than anything you know uh before we started this we might have had an idea of what a bergman film was but we wouldn't know uh what a sven nyquist shot bergman right. film was compared to compared to other Berg, eh, other cinematographers bergman used and mm-hmm. of course uh, like so many auteurs, uh, Bergman settled on his cadre of in front of and behind the camera talent that uh, that really became it was a collaborative effort, even though mm-hmm. his his name gets put on. And it was the same people collaborating every film. Yeah. Uh, right. Well, yeah, we, we talked about um, Wes Anderson earlier and that's right. always a classic case of that right like it's that's very true of Wes Anderson mm-hmm. it's true of Akira Kurosawa oh absolutely it's yeah true. Kurosawa is uh-huh. you know famously yeah yeah so the same people yeah. over uh, and over again yeah right right it is uh it seems to even be true of Varda I think too <laughs> yeah she she works with the same people even though she's not she's not doing features as often but uh yeah. I mean, oh, making is... movies is incredibly intense and right. you have to be comfortable with the people you're making them with or they turn into expensive disasters and you never make a movie again. Uh, right. So like, you know, you have to be able to collaborate most of the time uh, to make movies successfully. Um, it's just a big, big part of it. Um, right. So like, you know, you find people that you work well with and they work well with you and then you keep doing it and uh uh you know most jobs in the film industry you know are never posted to a job board they're always word of mouth like and you hear about a job because someone else on the same show you're working on uh heard about a job and you both wind up working on the next job together too because that's just the way it all works like in terms of collaboration it's vouching it's very old-fashioned in a way uh so yeah (laughs) Ah, uh, you guys and your. <sighs> that's actually the way education works in Japan as well. But that's you know. is it really? <laughs> yeah, pretty much. That's, that's how a, you get jobs. That's in Japan. unfortunate, actually. Actually, that's the way you get almost every job in Japan. Honestly, yeah, that's for, like, the way. Yeah, uh, in store or something. It's the way I think a lot of uh, uh, a lot of executive careers in the United States work that way is my impression of this. Like, you know, if you're in the boys club, you'll stay in the boys club, which is why, you know, exit CEOs can fail spectacularly out with their golden parachute and wind up at another company doing the same thing terribly again and run another company into the ground because, you know, you know, Oh, you know, I was, I was friends with so-and-so on the board who put me, you know, got me a job right away. And (laughs) right. It can become a problem. <laughs> yeah, no, for sure, definitely. Well, I mean, yeah, you, especially when you consider like the sort of the the people of talent who get overlooked or 
don't ever make it into the club, right? Who are capable of mm-hmm. a lot, but never, never get seen or never, never actually get the work that they should, right? We and that's like one of those losses that we'll never know how significant it is because we'll we literally have no way to know, right? Like we, right? We, when you never see their work, you will never see their work, right? Uh, basically, right. Mm-hmm. right. Uh, I love Florida. I watched. Uh, I don't know if either of you have seen it, but I, I took some time this afternoon and watched Barda's uh, 1968 documentary on the Black Panthers. I have not seen it yet. Uh, yeah, it's, it's pretty uh, good. It's pretty good. It's specifically, uh, it's shot during actions uh, around uh, Huey Newton's arrest uh, for the death of a police officer uh, and a free Huey campaign, but it's, it's very much the Black Panthers in their own words, um, but the uh, the narration provided is is pretty great too. Uh, particularly love uh, close to the end. The uh, narrator says uh, that white racists view the Black Panthers as uh, black fascists, uh, forgetting that the police uh, were not only much more dangerous but much much more fascist than yeah. <laughs> Uh, it's a great line uh but yeah she she does a phenomenal spectrum of work uh that grows out of her politics you know she she joined she ended up making black panthers and aligning with the american civil rights movement uh out of her uh leftism and feminism that she grew up in you know and godard did the does the same sort of thing in in uh in Europe, um, and we've talked about, you know, Tababien and, and some of his more overtly, uh, overtly, uh, political work, but, but Vardis, Vardis hits different, uh, in that she really is obviously being, being married to, uh, to Demi, uh, <laughs> she can live comfortably, you know, mm-hmm. um, but, uh, but I think just the way, the way the point court came together that we talked yeah. about last week, you know, it's a little bit of inheritance, a little bit of a loan from her mom and everyone agreeing to, to join a co-op. It. Yeah. <laughs> no one gets paid until we all get paid and, and then uh-huh. nobody no gets one paid. ever got paid. <laughs> yeah. Right. So, um, yep. Yep. Which is, you know, a t- hard way to keep making movies and why she didn't keep making movies like that. So, mm-hmm. <laughs> but yeah. Um, I just, I love this movie. I love the, yeah, I love this talk we've had, uh, but we should probably pull it to a close. I've already got to cut at least 10 minutes out of this. So we'll see how that goes. Uh, <laughs> Adam, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, a pleasure Glad to, to have be you. Here. Yeah. Thank uh, you. Thank you for listeners. having me on. As I said, next week we will be, uh, be talking about, uh, a couple of the short films that are on this selection as well. Le Opera Mouffe from 1958, uh, De Côte et le Côte uh, from 1958 as well, and uh, Le Fiancé Dupont MacDonald from 1961. Again, Adam, thank you for joining. Uh, thank you so much for listening to Lost in Criterion. I'm, as always, the Adam Glass. With me, as always, John Patrick Oatari Dorgan, and we'll see you again next week.
You've been listening to Lost in Criterion, hosted by John Patrick Oatari Dorgan and the Adam Glass, who edits it. We're a production of WithTwoBrains.com. Jonathan Hape does the music. Check him out at JonathanHape.Bandcamp.com. And hey, if you like us, why don't you give us a review on iTunes, like us on Facebook, or support us on Patreon. That's Patreon.com slash Lost in Criterion. We'd appreciate it.